All right, welcome back, cool fans from across the country and around the world. You're listening to American Billiard Radio. My name is Mr. Bond, and I'll be your host once again this week. It is October the 1st, 2015. And of course, tonight's show is brought to you in part by Tweet and Fiber Company, makers of Master Chalk and Elk Master Tips, and a whole host of other accessories for your game made right here in the United States. So, what's going on in the world of pool this week? Well, we're going to send out some congratulations to Mr. Shane Van Boning. Uh, he took the uh, Challenge of Champions title this past week. That's a nice little notch in the old belt there. And, of course, um, congratulations to Chinese Taipei for the World Cup of Pool title that they just took away. So that was good on them. They've been having some good showings, you know, uh, recently. And so we move on to, um, well, geez, you know, Vivian Villarreal's got the uh, Texas Tornado Open kicking off right now as we speak. They're having a great time down there, and I believe some of that is available uh, on uh, the stream. So I'd look into that. There's going to be some exciting matches going on there. And what else have we got going on for you? You know, there seems to be a hurricane <laughs> out in the uh, Atlantic. The U.S. Open nine ball is coming up here pretty quick, but uh, there's a hurricane. And uh, for most of us, you know, we're having a nice cool down for the fall here. But uh, sure enough, there's a storm out there a brewing. Um, right now, as it is, uh, it doesn't look like it's going to uh, tend to make landfall. It looks like it might just go straight north and then veer off into the ocean and not do anybody any harm. However, the possibility is there, though, that it could run right up the east coast into Norfolk, Virginia, uh, where the U.S. Open is going to be held in a couple of weeks. So let's just keep our fingers crossed for everybody on the east coast that that hurricane uh, just gets bored and goes out into the ocean and peters itself out. Uh, we really don't need any, you know, category forced storms hitting the uh, hitting the coast right now. Not a good time for that. So, anyway, um, also on tonight's show, we're going to be talking with uh, Mr. Ted Lerner. Uh, Mike Howerton paired up with Mr. Ted Lerner. Ted is uh, an author and is also the uh, media agent for the WPA. So he, uh, when you see stories from their events, it's usually Ted that does the reporting. So Mike's going to be chewing the fat with him about some of the pool going on uh, in the Philippines. You know, there's some surprising things that you might not know about Filipino pool. Uh, Ted is going to share with you. Uh, they also discuss uh, the Coe brothers and their career and uh, some more about pool sort of in general. So you're going to stick around for that. And a little bit later in the show... Uh, Mr. Mark Cantrell is uh, talking with um, a representative of the artistic pool players, um, Mr. Abram Diaz. Uh, apparently, the artistic pool players are having a little bit of a, a of an issue with the um, artistic pool division of the WPA and some of the promoters involved. So Mark is going to get to the bottom of that with Abram. Maybe you can learn a little bit more about that situation and see what's going on with it. But first, 
we're gonna bring you your one minute pull instructor. We'll be right back after this. Hi, I'm Scott Lee. Randy G. Welcome to the One Minute Pool Instructor. So what do we got today? Well, you know, I thought I'd talk a little bit about uh, some of the feedback that we've been uh, getting from uh, people across the country and around the world who uh, listen to American Billiard Radio and they happen to uh, hear our featured segments uh, every week. And uh, boy, we've been getting some amazingly positive feedback. I've got uh, several that, I, uh, that I'm actually embarrassed on that, that they're, <laughs> they're gushing over how, how well this is. And I think all I'm thinking we're doing is, is we're just talking about real things in pool. That's it. So, so what, 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 what do they tell you? Well, the, you know, I, I get uh, a lot of people who are really grateful uh, for us providing answers to some simple questions like, do you need to drop your elbow or not? Yeah, uh, yeah we've you, discussed can that. Can you use the weight of the, and the cue? Or what chalk has been a stir. Yeah, we've been do, through all that. Do you have to uh, use body weight when you break? I mean, uh, uh, lots of things that are common uh, knowledge out there that people believe you have to do because they see a pro do it, uh, when in reality, what we really want to teach you is to how to use your own body and your own weight and the way your arm works and your own sense of timing and rhythm to create your best case setup and delivery process. Well, that's what our pool schools are all about. It is. It's exactly what it's about. And, and you know, until you learn the, uh, the physical properties of how to get into a stance and set it up and make it look right and move that cue for yourself, uh, it's, it's very difficult to utilize other uh, knowledge sets uh, information we learn just from playing, uh, information on the mental game, that's a whole other side. And in fact, that's what I think that we'll talk about next week, wow. is new things in the mental game. Yeah, some, some new things have come about. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and old things, of course, too. And, well, okay. and again, uh, we're, we're lucky to be able to provide this uh, to the pool playing public out there. I'd like to uh, thank uh, Dave Bond and the listeners. And the listeners. Yeah, all we are is instructors. We're just good old boys, but I, <laughs> I, I, I don't know of anybody in the world, if you put us two together, has taught more students than us. I don't think so. Or either. separately, as far as that goes. But uh, All right, well, again, uh, for American Billiard Radio and the One Minute Pool Instructor, uh, I'm Scott Lee. And thank you, everybody. This is Randy G. And we'll be back next week with some new information on the mental game. Wow. I, I want to hear that. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of American Billiard Radio. I'm Mike Howerton. Very pleased this week to be joined by another man of many hats. Seems like so many people in the pool world are... are men and women of many hats, but I'm joined this week by Ted Lerner. Ted, which hat do you prefer to wear the most? Uh, well, for this uh, purposes, um, I would say uh, pedestrian. Um, <laughs> no, Mike, uh, perhaps a billiard journalist, commenta TV commentator uh, would, would work in this case. Well, you're a journalist, you're a commentator, you're a writer, um, Am I leaving anything out? No, that's pretty good. I think, you know, because for me, everything starts with writing, you know. 
And I and easily you can say, well, of course, if he's a journalist, he's a writer. But you've written books. Yes, I've written two books. Uh, they're travel books. Uh, they actually um, there was a story in um, uh, my book about the Philippines, actually, which was a collection of stories about Manila, about Filipino pool. Uh, it was um, about all the characters that hang out at um, some of the, uh, you know, nefarious pool halls in, in Manila. And to be honest with you, that's really where I got my start in covering pool and billiards was right here in the Philippines. If I had not moved to the Philippines 20 years ago, I would not have gotten into pool. I can honestly say that. I was more of into the a golf person. I grew up playing golf and boxing I was into and covered Pacquiao. But it was my attraction to none other than Efren Reyes and what a amazing folk hero he was here that just an amazing guy to write about and I'm talking about in the mid 90s uh, when not uh, Efren had not been written about much outside the pool world so it was my attraction to him as a character to write about that led me into the world of pool and I can say that Unequivocally, I got into pool thanks to Efren Reyes. For our listeners who aren't familiar with pool in the Philippines, I mean, it's not just Efren. Bustamante and Perica and Pagulayan and Alcano, I mean, they're all, they're all looked at as sports stars over there, aren't they? Well... Uh, yes, and yes, and in a way, um, it was bigger than it than it is now, and we can get into that later. But um, uh, back in the '90s, uh, you had these uh, really amazing players and characters who were just world class, and yet not many people knew about them. They were sort of they were known in the Filipino pool community, and. They would appear on television and people would watch. They'd get millions of people to watch. But it wasn't that on TV all the time back in the 90s. And really, Efren was the man. So um, it, it, it is an amazing uh, thing to see how pool is so much a part of the fabric of this country. And when you go into the history of it, how the Americans... Are, were very much a part of that, and the American military bases were a part of that, bringing the pool culture to the Philippines. And, and in some ways, I mean, you could say that that F, guys like Efren and Bustamante and even Perica would earn a lot of their money back in the day from taking dollars off of uh, GIs who had, um, you know, three months had been on the uh, out at sea or whatever, and over in Vietnam or, or for three months and. Uh, with came back with all this American money brimming out of their pockets, just just looking for a place to spend it. So when they got done spending it on girls and beer, um, they would spend it on the pool table, and Ephraim was right there to lift it off them. And you mentioned uh, the pool halls over in the Philippines. It's been uh, Jerry Forsyth and myself. You know, we were over there for a couple of tournaments years ago, but. Is it still the same situation where it seems like there's a pool hall on every corner? Yeah, there, there really is. Now, the sport is not as popular as it was uh, w w when Efren won the World Nine Ball in 1999. That was then when there was a definitely an explosion of pool halls, more for, let's say, the middle class and the upper class here. Uh, that was when the game was just red hot. Uh, that's died down. 
Uh, and again, we can talk about that a little bit why, but um, that has died down. But still, for the masses, and there's tens of millions of them here, you know, we have over about 110 million people now in the Philippines. You can go in any neighborhood and you will see an outdoor canteen with a raggedy pool table and there will be guys with nothing to do uh, crowded around the table, uh, you know, with a, a raggedy cloth and it's humid as, as, as hell and they will be playing pool and they'll be playing money games. There's even a thing here where you can see almost on every block in um, the, the neighborhoods and in the poor areas where they have a wooden table that spins around uh, and it's they play with wooden discs and they put powder on the table and the wooden and it's a pool they actually call that pool they call pool what we know is pool billiards so pool is like wooden discs on a on a flat table and it spins around and people play with just a any old stick so it's just ingrained in the culture of the masses over here from what I've heard from a handful of pros who have gone over there and played. Not only does it seem like everybody plays, but there's world beaters over there that you don't even know by name. I mean, if you're, oh my god, you know, if you're, I'm not going to say an Earl Strickland, but you know, if you're a top, if you're a 15 to 30 ranked player in the U.S., you don't necessarily go over there and say, if I don't recognize you, let's gamble. Oh, no. Oh, no. You ask guys like uh, Darren Appleton, um, even a guy like, I mean, so many guys that, like Ruben Bautista, a guy player from Mexico, who I'm sure a lot of American players are familiar with because I know he hangs around in the U.S. I was talking to him recently at the World Nine Ball in Qatar, and I was surprised to learn that he hangs, that he came to the Philippines for two months. And these guys, yeah, have taken their lumps from people that, you would think are, you know, beggars on the street. They dress like in raggedy T-shirts and stuff. There are so many good players that nobody has or ever will hear of. They just play for day and night. And and again, going back to these places like where they play at, the conditions they play in are would be considered fifth world for an American. And that's one of the reasons why Filipinos are so good, I think, because they're so used to playing on in any old condition, you know, and they can play on any table. They don't care if people walk in front of them. They don't care if there's noise in the in the background. They don't mind because they're used to it. Yeah, there's there's world beaters everywhere. And you walk into a pool hall at your peril. Yeah. Jay <laughs> Helfert knows about this. He's good at it, though. Jay knows how to spot him and. And he'll only he comes over here all the time, and he'll only play for like twenty dollars, you know, just to have fun, get a get a little game on, and make a donation to the local community. And logically, if you're playing on a table with with heavy heavy cloth and it's super humid conditions, everything's moving much slower on the table, right? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, you would think once you condition yourself to having to stroke balls in those conditions and then you come over to the states and play on you know Simonis 860 on a beautiful diamond it it, it would have to seem pretty easy <laughs> yeah i guess it would take a little bit of adjustment too they do have some nice places here um there is a uh place in Manila. I don't know if um, you've heard of it or maybe some of the listeners have heard of it 
called Star Paper. Right. There, yeah, uh, it's a guy named Sebastian Chua. He's a Chinese Filipino, very wealthy man. Uh, he's he's actually from the Philippines, but I think he originally came from China. Uh, he's made a fortune here in the Philippines, and he is perhaps the biggest patron that uh, Pool has here. He set up this pool hall in a warehouse district where he's actually in the paper business and that's where he made all his money thus called star paper but in his compound which is in the middle of a warehouse district it's the kind of place you'd think they throw um you know dead bodies uh <laughs> when they don't know what to do with them or something that's how it looks when you're there it's the most r ridiculous place for a pool hall he's got about 50 brunswick tables in the um pool hall all brand new uh, it's the most beautiful place you've ever seen, and he offers it for free to anybody who wants to come and play. Wow. So, and he's got a, the most amazing, I think the world's largest collection of Predator Q-sticks on the wall in cases, uh, and everything is free. You can go there, free internet, he gives away free truck, he'll give you free snacks. If you don't have a ride, he'll pick you up down the street uh, to take you there, and it, it is just amazing. So a lot of the players who are getting better and want to get and want to rise up in the ranks go to him and go play there and he has weekly tournaments for you know offering two thousand dollar tournaments like that now you say that it's not as strong as it was back when Efren won um i mean why is that i mean if there's still that kind of level of play over there well that's what a lot of people uh, want to know uh and it is it, the answer is very simple. It is politics. I think uh, back in the day when, and also don't forget the you know the worldwide economic uh, crisis which happened in 2008 affected everything. Um, but the game was going full bore. Uh, this place was paradise, as you know, uh, back in the middle 2000s, early 2000s, middle 2000s. We had the World Nine Ball Championship two times that was called the world pool championship that was put on by matchroom it had a local promoter uh he was going great then in 2008 this promoter uh yen makabenta decided to uh, drop the matchrooms event in which he was paying like a million dollars a year to get and he was he got approval from the wpa to do the world 10 ball championship and he put up four hundred thousand dollars which is an amazing amount of money for a local promoter to put up uh, for the World Ten Ball, and at about that time, there, you know, a bit of jealousy from other promoters, and look at this guy—he's really succeeding. And, and basically, they sabotaged him. He was—they um, had a boycott from managers and other promoters here in the Philippines, and some of the big names like Efren and Bustamante uh, couldn't play, or Coolio, a uh, bunch of them boycotted. There was about forty of them boycotted a $400,000 tournament in their own city. And you know Filipinos from watching them in the States, they'll go anywhere for $1,000 sure. to play pool. And to boycott, now they were just told to boycott this by their managers because basically it's politics. There were some disagreements on how things were being done and, and all this. And so that was, it. that was it right there. You boycott a $400,000 tournament in your own country and what do you think is going to happen? Well, the sport's going to eventually fall apart. Advertisers don't want to be a part of it. Uh, you, you know, you can't get sponsors. Uh, they don't know who's going to be in the tournament if you if they do sign up to advertise in it. And so eventually, that combined with the economic crisis, the whole thing fell apart. And now 
they have a new um, new people running the local association, and it is a nightmare. There is not even a national championship in the Philippines, and I think it's a disgrace uh, what has happened. Okay, it's okay if you don't have the big events uh, that happens, you know, the economic crisis and everything. But to not have even a national championship or a national ranking is sad. You mentioned something that I'd like to that I'd like to come back to. You mentioned uh, managers, and that's something that we really don't have here in the states. Can you can you elaborate a little bit on that? Well, that used to be a big thing when the game was going good, uh, guy, and, and and but now it's uh, almost disappeared. Um, but the guys used to have managers who would you know, cover every aspect of them going to tournaments and even give them a monthly stipend like that. So um, they would play for the manager. The manager, sort of like a state course, I suppose, you know, and you win money in the tournament, you've got to give a percentage to the manager. There, there were guys who would have 30, 40 players under their wing, but now I think it's mostly um, gone away. The Since the sport is not, there's no money in it anymore here. Uh, you, you'll, you'll find guys like the guy who had uh, 40 players now has one, something like that. It's not really much of a thing anymore. Uh, guys are on their own. How does a manager tell a player you're not playing in such and such an event? I mean, in the States, if a sponsor tells a player, well, first of all, in the States, a sponsor wants a player playing in everything they can. <laughs> but, you know, in the, I guess. How do you how do you tell a player you're not going to play in in a thousand dollar event, let alone a four hundred thousand dollar event? There's a different culture over here, and um, it's a culture of uh, gratitude to the person who is paying your way. So, for example, if you're a poor person, a peasant, we shall, shall we say, uh, living in the middle of nowhere, uh, you're uh, in the farm area and uh, you are itinerant farmer and your ch- child gets sick and you go to the um, village chief or the local mayor and say, Mr. Mayor, my child is sick, please help me. And he pays for the hospital bill for your uh, child. You owe him a debt of gratitude. Um, it's not just thank you or you write them a letter and you know of your appreciation. It's a debt of gratitude, and this extends can sometimes be for months and even years. And it's like that for pool players. It's like that for people you know, all in all walks of life. Uh, those who have the money, I guess, those who have the gold rule. It's called the golden rule, <laughs> and um, that's the way it was. And so the players, I know for a fact, didn't want a boycott they were told you're not playing in this tournament and that was that they had no control wow they had no control but now that wouldn't happen because most of the players are on their own and the whole scene here is basically it's pretty sad i mean there's a lot of money games still but even that there's not a lot of state courses to to around any to fund these money games so on one hand i guess you would say that without the managers and the politics, it might be better off for the players. But then again, without the manager's pockets, maybe it's not any better for the players. 
Well, it would be better for the players uh, if there was more tournaments. It's all—it's really a diabolical situation. When I was in Doha, Qatar, for the World Nine Ball, you, you run into a lot of Filipino players who you recall seeing back in the day in Manila who would have been hanging out in Manila doing their thing because the scene was so vibrant. They have now moved to the Middle East where they are working in pool halls as coaches or house pros in offbeat off the beaten track pool pool clubs in in such vibrant places as Saudi Arabia Kuwait Doha Qatar uh, Dubai I mean you name it it's bizarre to see it guys who will leave family behind in the Philippines who have four kids and a wife back in the Philippines working for five hundred dollars a month as a house pro in a club in the Middle East just to earn a living. Wow. I mean, then you have guys who are a little more lucky, like Antonio Gabica, uh, the great Filipino player who went to the finals against uh, Dorsten Homan a couple years ago. I think it was three years ago in Doha. He's a coach for the national squad in Qatar, and that's funded by the Olympic Committee. So that's quite a good position. He's able to bring his family over, but there's plenty of guys who would just assume they would, of course, they'd like to be back in the Philippines, who have actually made their way over to the Middle East to do what I just described. And I've noticed an influx of of different Filipino players playing in the U.S. tournaments. I mean, Orcoyo's over here, and he, you know, he spends time here most of the time anyway. But Roberto Gomez, I hadn't seen his name in years. Uh, Jundal Maison, he's over here. Is it just because the situation is so bad over there? That is exactly the reason why you're seeing these guys there. There is nothing going on here in the Philippines, and I mean nothing. I couldn't even find the adjective or adverb to describe how truly sad it is and how low the game has gone here in this country. It is, like I said, there's not even a national championship this is one of the greatest pool playing countries in the world and there's not even a time in the calendar where they all gather to have a proper national championship taiwan has it by the way you know who the the you, you i know we, you want to talk about ko Pinyi, he's the man of the moment his brother ko Jun is the national champion he won the grand finals and he beat ko Pinyi in the finals that's a that's a true pool playing country they have leagues and they have they have a national championship. Here in the Philippines, there is nothing. So that's why you're seeing guys, all these great players, go to the U.S. because there's so much action, there's so many places to play, and they can they can improve their game, and they can earn some money along the way. And I do definitely want to touch on Co. but before we do, um, one of the other hats that you wear is you are the WPA media rep. So you're out. Not only are you out at all the WPA events, but... I'm guessing you've got a pretty good read on what's going on with the WPA, what's what's on the the horizon as far as events. Um, how's how's that going? Well, it's uh, it's tough. The sport is tough. It seems to be sort of stuck where it is in in the in the in the mud a bit. Uh, there's a you know a few events. Um, you've got the Women's World Nine Ball Championship coming up. Uh, that's uh, in Guilin. Um, you have yeah, the China Open, uh, which is a regular on the calendar, uh, the Doha event, the World Nine Ball. 
Um, apparently, I, I'm not really privy to the ins and outs of, uh, of you know, what the board does and everything. I'm, I'm not sure what they do, to be honest <laughs> with you. Uh, um, it's, uh, it just doesn't seem to be much happening as far as new events. Um, not a lot of sponsors out there. Uh, you hear talk as you do in pool of, uh, oh, there's going to be this guy investing in the game and that guy investing in the game. Um, I didn't even go to the China event. I'm, I'm only hired to do uh, the media when there is an event and there's money to do the event. Um, I don't think the organization has tons of money. So, um, you know, uh, but, you know, that's a bit of a bone of contention on my part. Being a media guy like you, Mike, you know, uh, we, we know how important media is even when you have nothing else going on for you. You better have good media and good right. PR. So obviously I wish there was more. And I believe that having good media and good PR could really help the game grow. Um, one thing I will say about it is in China, where when you go there, um, you just wish that there was more events in China. They seem to have a lot of events. But the Chinese people who run the game, like at the CBSA, that's the China Billiard and Snooker Association, and that's under the Olympic Committee, so thus in China, that's government. Um, you know, that's what people have to understand. I think that um, they don't care about the game being known outside of China. So when they do a world event such as the China Open, they're not really interested in what people outside of China think or say. And they could really help us out uh, with expenses for people like me to come over there and, and publicize the event to the English-speaking world and beyond, but they don't because they don't really care. Um, they're really China-centric, and that's what I've noticed. Um, and it's great what they do there. They have it on national TV. They get millions of people watching, but they don't really are concerned that if I'm not there covering it for the WPA, really nobody knows about it, and all you get are grainy cell phone pictures of, of brackets, handwritten brackets on a, on a wall. <laughs> you know how people, t right. players take pictures of brackets and, and go, here, here's the next group. <laughs> well, that's all you get. And they don't understand the concept of, of that it's how important it is to have media beyond their borders. So I would say as a media person for the WPA, it's a bit depressing. Well, as a media person, you know, Mostly for the U.S., I, I can agree with that. I mean, there, there are promoters out here who don't seem to find the the importance of of getting information out during and after a tournament. But you know, that's a whole different story. Well, yeah, absolutely. Uh, media is go is, would go such a long way to uh, helping uh, promote the game. And and one of the things I do as a writer. And, and I, I look at myself as a storyteller, and that's the only thing that keeps me interested in pool. I'm not oh, particularly interested in the X's and O's and that he went three rails, and, and um, that, that's important for a player to point these things out. But as a storyteller, that to me is what is really going to help the game uh, for bringing the masses who are probably interested in pool but maybe don't know who they're looking at or, and know nothing about the players. And, you know, you want to know who you're looking at. You know, you want to know who is Shane Van Boning. Why is he where he is? Where is he from? What's he all about? How does he handle the pressure? These are important things to bring in fans, and this is what people want to know. They want to know stories. This is why reality television is so popular. 
People want stories, and this is what I try to do when, and when I write, is tell the stories, not just of the big players, but even the, the up-and-coming players, the mediocre players, the players who, like the Filipinos, who go far from home and are, are on the road in some godforsaken place in a, in a pool hall earning $500 a month. This is interesting to see how tough it is out there you know, for these players. This is what's going to make the game big is, is, is making these people human. And, and, you know, you had mentioned earlier tonight that, you know, it's about the characters. There was a time years ago when the game was full of characters. Now it seems like it's full of robots. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Again, it can seem like that, but you know, if you go back and look what I, you know, like what we, you know, the, the stuff I was, throwing out from Doha every day. You're talking about a nine-day tournament plus the previews and all. Every day I try to write something about somebody who you may not have heard about. Like one day we featured uh, this new up-and-coming player from Singapore. His name is Aloysius Yap. Absolutely fantastic talent. Uh, He could come to the States and walk into a pool hall. He'd probably get a money game wherever he goes. He looks like he's a chubby school kid. And people go, ah, this guy can't play. And oh, can he play? <laughs> it's unbelievable. And one day he beat Darren Appleton in the group stages, and Darren App- he routed him like 9-5, to five, and Darren Appleton said he played the best match of the tournament and still got routed. And this kid, I featured him as our top story that night uh, from the World Nine Ball that was this year. And he ended up going to the quarterfinals, so I guess that shows that I have a good judge of talent. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, but... There was another night we featured a guy from Saudi Arabia. Would you believe that there are over 100,000 registered pool players in Saudi Arabia? And Ian Anderson of the WPA, the president, tells me that there even possibility there might be a pool tournament in Saudi Arabia uh, one of these days. Can you imagine that? I mean, who would have thought? You would think that they're all fundamentalists and who, you know, disapprove of of this uh, bourgeois Western pastime. It's not true. It's not true. They have pool halls, and um, I guess women aren't allowed in the pool halls, uh, or if they are, it's separate. But for the men, um, yeah, there's a lot of up-and-coming pool players and very good players from Saudi Arabia. So this is how we grow the game, you know, by writing about these things. It's important because these guys are great players. South America, Mike. Tons of players. I'm sure you see them in the U.S. Guys like Ruben Bautista, uh, these guys from Peru, Christopher Tevez, Manny Chow. I think he lives in Houston. Uh, they were in the World Cup of Pool, the, the doubles event in right. London recently. Great players, but nobody knows about them, and they're characters. They're great to write about. And, and, and I want to touch on uh, World Cup of Pool and World Nine Ball. I mean, if you're talking about those two events, you have to kind of come back to Copin Yi. Um, he has been thought of in the States as one of the top players uh, in, in Chinese Taipei, but I don't know. Maybe he was looked at as somebody who just hadn't... Maybe we looked at him in the States the way they look at Shane outside of the States. You know, He's a great player, but but can he win something? You know, something major. He he has definitely opened some eyes in the past six weeks or so. And and you were at both events. You got to see him play. Is there 
is there something he's doing different? Is it a newfound confidence? Uh, is it just one of those hot streaks that players sometimes go on? I mean, he's he's probably a shoe in for player of the year this year. Oh, without a doubt. I was also at the World Ten Ball in uh, Southern Philippines, which he also won. Um, so, while it's not a surprise to me, uh, I think that's just internet talk. People with nothing better to talk about when they say, and I, and I also would say this about Shane, where people say, oh, well, he's never won the big one, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, outside the U.S., and he's never won this or that. I mean, Coping, he's 26 years old. He was a child prodigy at 11 years old. He was an amazing player. Uh, he won the World Junior Championship, and that's a WPA World Junior Championship. He won that twice. So I've seen him over the years, and you knew even several years ago that it was just a matter of time. It just takes time. Nobody is an overnight success in this world. I don't care what line of work you're in. Um, you know, AZ Billiards, you know, or it didn't come out of nowhere. It <laughs> takes time to build it up, you know, and work. And that's what Copigny is like. Um, you, I never doubted that he would be uh, one of the greatest to ever play. He is just such an amazing talent. I remember watching him at the World 8-Ball about four years ago in Fujaira, and he is able to park the cue ball in the center of the table on a regular basis. He's just an amazing player, and he practices every aspect of his game, as do all the Taiwanese. And so what he has now, he has the experience, um, and he, you know he's been there and done that, so he sucked up all the pressure, and he was able to come through. And I think winning breeds winning. And when you get that confidence, you just, it, it just, you know that you now can do it. Against uh, Beato at the World 10 Ball, he played in the final, the first half of the race to 11, I believe it was. In one of the greatest uh, sets I've ever seen, the first half. He was on fire. He couldn't do anything wrong. He was playing really daring shots and that nobody would play in a final. And then he lost it a little bit. Beato came back and applied unbelievable pressure. And at the end, I thought Copigny could barely lift the cue stick. He was under so much pressure. But he, what he does is he slows the game down to his pace. And it's even with a shot clock, it's a bit of a slower pace. And he doesn't rush things. And I think that's one of his keys. And he takes a deep breath. And he just maintains his composure. And that's what one of his uh, keys, besides being an amazing talent. So he's really got things going his way, and he understands how to win. And I think you're going to see him in the winner's circle a lot more. He was over here in the States a year ago uh, with his, his younger brother. And the talk at that time was that Coping Chung, his younger brother, actually had a better win-loss record against Copigny. I'll give it the facts to you. I was told by an interpreter uh, at the World Nine Ball, who's from Taiwan, who was helping the guys out, that the two brothers have played three times in competition, and the younger one, Copin Chung, has beaten Copigny two out of three times, and one of them was in the grand finale, which is the Taiwan National Championship. How about that? So that's how good he is. 
going back to World Nine Ball Championship, Shane Shane owned Ko Ping Chung in that semifinal match. I mean, Shane could do no wrong, and Ko Ping Chung didn't seem to be able to. I mean, he just wasn't handling the stress very well, which is is hard to do when your opponent's playing that well. Uh, yeah. I mean, what happened? I mean, did was it a case because with the hours and everything difference, I was able to watch the semifinal. I wasn't able to watch the final. Was it a case of Copin Yi just slowing things down and taking Shane out of his game there in the finals? A bit, but Shane says that, uh, you know, Shane had the break going. Uh, they were using the magic rack and it's one on the spot. So Shane had this thing where he would make the wing ball and he would bring, instead of going for the one in the side pocket, he had the one coming down table, and every time he would have a shot on the one. And that's why he was blowing out opponents, because he had that figured out. But the thing is, is that in the final, there were much more people, many more people in the arena. And that's what Shane says, and he says the humidity changed. Now, this may just be an excuse. I don't know. But, you know... It's not just that. I don't think it's just that. You know, I mean, Shane didn't have the break going in the final that he did. You could tell right from the opening rack it was like he just didn't have it. Maybe it was nerves on Shane's part that he was maybe putting a little extra into that cue shot. I mean, that breakoff shot, and that he just didn't have it right. You know, you never know, Mike, with pressure. I, that's what I always say. You always hear players complaining about the rack or it's too easy. You never notice something when it's when they all say it's too easy at this tournament because they're using the magic rack. Do you ever see an amateur go to the final? <laughs> the cream always rises to the top. And in pool, one thing I've learned of watching tournaments over the years, and I've watched a lot of them, is that pressure is the great equalizer. So, uh, you know, even if you're running away with things in the rest of the tournament, as Shane was, it was sensational what he was doing he was blowing people out i think over five matches race to 11 in the knockout stages he he had a 55 to 11 score line that's unbelievable yeah it is you know and but then he got to the finals and he yeah i think one of the things was it was the break he didn't quite have the break so he got caught up in the whole you know in copigny's style which was a much slower game, and they didn't have a shot clock. He's not a slow player, Copigny. He's just methodical. He's not method, and he's not like he's not methodical like in the Ralph Suquet sort of way. It's hard to describe. He's just got a very low key temperament, and I think Shane got sort of caught up in that. And Copigny just knows how to suck up the pressure, especially when he's behind. In the semifinal, he was six-two down to Wu Cha Ching, uh, who is just. I think everybody's favorite player. He is, I love Wu Cha Ching. You know, he's the one who won the world nine ball at 16 and the world eight ball at 16 years old. Right. And he came back from 6-2 down to Wu Cha Ching. So, and he he owned that match in the second half. And he did the same with uh, Shane. He came back when it counted. They did the same in the World Cup of Pool. They came back from 5-1 down in the final against England. So, something to be said about that. There's one other thing that I wanted to ask you about, and and this is this is a conversation that I've had with a couple different people, and I think that you would be very well suited to ask the question too, because you've been watching pool at the top level for how many years? Um, you know, we go back to the characters of the game, uh, 
the Efrens, the the Keith McCready's, the Buddy Halls, the Earl Strickland's. There was a time, and, and this is my contention, and please tell me if you think that I'm wrong. There was a time when it was a lot more fun to watch guys play nine ball than it is now. I don't know if it's because of the break. I don't know if it's because of the lack of characters, but watching nine ball just doesn't seem as enjoyable as it was maybe 10 years ago when guys came in and just reared back and crushed the rack and they were trying to have shape on the next, you know, on the first ball after the break, but they didn't always do it. They might have to come with some crazy shot. And, and you know, that doesn't even get into how much fun it was to watch a Keith or an Earl. And we have some characters, but not nearly as many as we used to have. Am I completely off base? Well, no, I think, um, I think you're touching on something that, you know, is at the heart of the problem with pool. And I think it's also something that uh, a company like Matchroom Sport addresses really well. Uh, and that, and we talked about this earlier, lack of characters, uh, the game becoming too, um, the same with the sort of magic rack. By the way, people should know, you know, this whole thing with the magic rack and the balls having to be frozen together, um, the rules of pool, according to the WPA, don't say that the balls have to be frozen together. I think this was something that the, was, the players were allowed to sort of take over this, the game and they were, would, you know, look at the rack and say, no, they have to be frozen together and the referee would freeze them together. The rules say they have to be as tight as possible. That's all. Okay. So Matchroom match room has solved this problem. And I noticed it. Uh, they put the nine on the spot. They're racking in a wooden triangle. And the referee racks the balls. And the players can look at the rack. But they can't ask for a re-rack. And now what was happening was we had so many varied break-off shots. They had so many dry breaks that the players were coming in and – as a last resort, they were just banging the balls. They were slamming them as hard as you could imagine. And it was really a lot of fun to watch. And they couldn't tell where the balls were going. Almost no team in the World Cup of Pool was able to get a regular thing going on the break. And it made for much more varied and interesting matches. Uh, it made it much more interesting to commentate on. Can you imagine how boring it, it is? Like when a Ronnie Alcano, he won the World Nine Ball here in the Philippines, soft-breaking he had the same break every time. Yeah, it was great for Filipinos, but boy, was it boring. Yeah, you know, it looks like they're they're shooting a drill after the break. Right, right, exactly. So this time, uh, I think Matchroom has solved the issue of the break. Um, I don't think they should allow players to rack their own balls uh, because that that can be. You know, guys who know the rack, like Shane, I just don't think it looks very good. The guys who are knowledgeable in how to rack balls can leave gaps for themselves. That that really taints the sport, I think. But having a referee hand rack on a triangle, put the nine on the spot, and they can't figure it out. It is, uh, and it makes for a great thing. Also, it's the presentation of pool. You know, back when you're talking about, they had a tour, the Camel Tour, so it was on television. Television is unbelievable for the sport when it's done right. And Barry Hearn and his team at Matchroom just take the game to another level altogether. It is sensational. 
and they make the players into characters. They, they have a lot of fun with the sport. The Japanese players were, everybody was loving the Japanese players at the World Cup of Pool. They would come in and have fun, and they were laughing at shots and carrying on and shouting. And Matchroom has a way of playing all that up. And they, they put the music in, and they interview the players before and after the event. Anybody who wants to know how pool should be done, go to YouTube and look up, you know, World Cup of Pool. A lot of the matches are already on there. This year's event, Mike, was the biggest and best yet. It was seen in 40 countries live. They're, they're putting package programming together. 31 one-hour programs are going to send out around the world. And it's, it's an event that is growing. And it really is amazing what Matchroom does with the game. It, they treat it just like in America they would treat a baseball game or a football game or a basketball game. It's that detailed and it's treated as a sport with stories to tell. I can't say enough good about what Matchroom does. Then you'll get then you'll get the old time you'll feel like you're back in old time pool. <laughs> so then it's your contention that it's not necessarily a lack of characters that we have these days. It's just that they're not put in front of the public. Oh God yeah. It's it's Characters, as I said before, I mean, I found characters to write about every day at the World Nine Ball um, when I go to these tournaments. There are so many interesting players and stories to tell. It's how it's presented. You know, people watch these matches on three-camera hotel ballroom tournaments, but they don't know anything about them. They, they, it's not presented in an exciting way. It's, it's, it's flat doesn't jump off the page with a matchroom event it, it literally jumps out at you it's in high definition it's it's just everything about it it's called it's about details you know and this is what any sport should be treated as and I think pool is a legitimate sport and it's got a lot of potential when it's treated as such yeah well Barry and, and Luke over there I hope you're listening <laughs> We definitely uh, appreciate it. It seems like this game would be in in much more precarious situation if it weren't for them. Well, you know, it seems like they're progressing with the Moscone Cup. You know, last time in the, the in Blackpool they had twelve hundred fans, and I think that was a revelation to Barry Hearn. He, you know, he I don't think he believed that they could fill that stadium in Blackpool, and they did. Um, now at the Tropicana in December where they're moving the uh, Moscone, um, they're, ha they're setting up an arena that's going to hold a 1,000 people. And two years ago uh, at the, what was it, the Mirage, yeah. the arena held 650. So you can see they're making progress. And Barry Hearn wouldn't set up an arena with 1,000 people at the Tropicana if he didn't think that something was happening in pool and maybe – Maybe there is a little light on the horizon that he will possibly get into it a little more, a little deeper with perhaps another event or two, because it is possible when it's done right to, to draw more people, as, as he is proving with the Moscone. Right. Are you coming out for Moscone? Uh, I'm not sure. Um, I'm hoping to be uh, on the crew, but I, I don't know at the exact time. So hopefully I'll be there. Would love to. And if you're not at Moscone, what's your next event? Um, my next event, I believe I have an appointment at the unemployment office. 
uh, <laughs> down the street. Um, no. Uh, well, I write, you know, for Billiards Digest, and um, so I'm writing a few features on uh, for for Mike at Billiards Digest, and uh, like on the World Cup of Pool. I'm trying to go, you know, get him to send me over to Taiwan. We're looking at doing a big feature on the Co Brothers. Taiwan's only two hour flight from here, and I think it would be a great thing cool fans in the U.S. to get a real insight into what these guys are about and how they do it. Um, oh, I know. I may be going to China for the Women's World Nine Ball. That's a great event, by the way. Um, you won't hear much about it outside the U.S., except if I'm there, um, you know, sending out stories. But I love watching the women players uh, play in an um, environment where they're treated like big-time pros. And in China, it's amazing how the women are out-and-out out stars in China. The men not so much, but it, the women are treated like, you know, superstars. It's a great event. So I'm hoping to go there. And when is that? That would be November 2nd through the 8th or something like that. It's in Guilin, China. It's a, it's a, a famous tourist town, um, an area with these high mountains surrounding the town. It's a beautiful area. It was in Shenyang for five years, which is more of an industrial town in northeast, northeast China. But this Guilin they had it there last year was a fantastic place, and they put on a great event. At the opening ceremony, they had 5,000 people and, and stars from movie and, and entertainment from China singing and dancing and magicians and everything at the opening ceremony. This... Can you imagine, like, <laughs> like women players from the U.S. who are used to going around, nobody knows who they are, and they come to China, and they go on stage, and there's 5,000 people going crazy. <laughs> it's just, it's surreal. Wow. So I hopefully I'll be there for that. Well, as as AZ Billiards, uh, I hope the same thing, because it's always great when, when you're at an event uh, providing coverage for us. Uh, well, thanks. I, you know, I really enjoy it. I, I really enjoy pool, professional pool, and I, I, I have a soft spot for pro pool players who go around the world and try to make a go of it. It is the toughest sport in the world. It is so hard to win and make money, and anybody who goes out there and does it, tip of the hat for me because uh, I don't know how they do it. It's just they got to have a will of steel to be on that circuit. So as one – as one journalist to another, believe me, there are times, you know, I've been running AZ for 15 years. There's, there are times when the politics and everything, I mean, it just drags you down. You still love the oh, game yeah. as much as you have, uh, as much as you did in the beginning. Actually, the more, I love it more because, um, I, I understand it more, uh, than I ever have. And I learn more about it, watching it all the time. And, and, the you know, the very, shots and the thinking and the mental side of it that's what interests me but yeah i i agree it is oftentimes a depressing sport to be involved in because you want it to be bigger you know you want it to be have a wider audience and you want to share um the excitement of, of a great event with people who who you know that no, love, love sports but are so busy with so many things and it's just hard to get the word out to people and it's hard to see the sport just sort of muddle along and with you know like the US Open has no media coverage it's except for you guys going there but it's like it doesn't have 
you know, why doesn't it look like, you know, the golf, the U.S. Open golf or something like right. it's very frustrating, very frustrating uh, to, to be in this sport. But I, I'm an optimist, Mike. I'm, <laughs> I'm a half full glass, half full kind of guy. And I refuse to let it get me down for too long. Well, Ted, you know, it's easy to look at something like what Matchroom does and say, boy, the sport would sure be in a terrible place if it weren't for Matchroom. But, you know, the game would be in a worse place than it is now if it weren't for guys like you. Oh, and guys like you. So <laughs> let's congratulate each other. No, I, I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad I've, I've been able to step into this role as uh, being able to go around the world and cover pool. It's a, it's a dream. I, that's why I get depressed because I want to do it more. Right. I feel like I'm on to something. I'm sure you feel the same way. You're on to something, but it's like sometimes you just wish it would go higher so we could be out on the road 20 weeks a year and earning a pro- everybody earning a proper living. Yeah. Well, Ted, I appreciate you taking a little bit of time from us today. It's uh, I know it's afternoon out there for you. Uh, I hope to see you at Moscone Cup and before that, I hope to be uh, posting stories from you from China. I, Mike, if I, I, it's great talking to you, and uh, uh, just like to say hello to all the fans out there, and and uh, you know, keep following pool and spreading the word, everybody. That's um, that's the only way forward. Well said, Ted. All right, uh, we will talk to you later, Ted. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. That's uh, that's my bit for this week. Uh, we'll be back next week or the week after. I'm, I'm not real good about doing a bit every week, but we'll be back, uh, as my partner in crime, Jerry, says, just as soon as there's a story to tell. Thanks, everybody. Welcome back to American Billion Radio. This is the Legends and Champions Report. This is Mark Cantrell, your host. And uh, what we have this week is uh, looking at AZ Billions. And there's been some uh, kind of talk, rumoring around um, the artistic pool division of our sport. Uh, I've got a little bit of, uh, some, I, I should call it infighting. Um, where they don't want to see some changes, and there's been a, a group of, uh, I believe, 16 to 18 players, I'll, I'll correct on that in a moment, uh, that have got together to form a basically a players union to try and make some changes. Uh, I'm not an expert on the artistic pool side of, uh, of things and how things work, uh, but I have a line with me, a gentleman that is, He's uh, currently ranked uh, number six in the world. He's part of the Players' Union, and his name is Abraham Diaz. How are you doing, Abraham? I'm doing good, Mark. Good. Um, so basically, a letter was sent from the Players' Union, and that includes uh, is it, is it 13 of the top uh, artistic ranked artistic pool players in the world. Yes, sir. And... Um, I call it, a, it, whether it's correct or not, it's, uh, I call it a demand letter. Um, and you guys had some things, some changes that you guys needed to have made. 
you got together after uh was that world championship in Atlanta? Uh yes, we got together. It was actually during the world championship on Saturday night. Yeah, uh, and you the put down the all finals. your thoughts. You put down all your thoughts of what you thought needed to be changed. And if yes. the W, got to be careful how we phrase this. The WPA has a division called the APD, which is the Artistic Pool Division. Correct? Yes. And you guys sent this letter and said, here's, here's the changes that we really need to see made. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to come to any more of these events. And yes. So, what, let's start with, when you want to start international player payouts, here's some of the categories that you guys and, and why you feel they need to be changed. Uh, payouts for international players. Um we feel that the players that come overseas should be given a traveler's check instead of a, a check, especially when the APD's head bank is the Bank of Oklahoma City. I'll give an instance where the winner of the tournament, Gabby Vesolu from Romania, was handed a check for his prize money, and it was from the Bank of Oklahoma City, and he told the, the tournament director, he's like, I can't take this back home. My, the Bank of Transylvania and Romania, they're gonna. It's just a piece of paper to them. And we're in Atlanta. I can't even cash it here in Atlanta. And they really did not have the APD did not have a solution for him. He ended up having to give the check back, and they're having to wire him money. Okay. And how long has that been going on? I mean, is, is this being a constant issue? And uh, other, uh, I'm guessing there's a lot of uh, international players. Yes, I mean, uh, you know, uh, the the check thing has been a real a real issue for our international players. It wouldn't be a big issue if we were the APD would be with uh, a national bank, with the national bank, the Chase Bank. Uh, a Union Bank, a Bank of America, then, I mean, those are all over the, the country. Right. Right, and then you can just go and cash it. Okay. You can just go and cash it. Right. Uh, so that's one that, to, to me, shouldn't be that big of a deal to change. Uh, but by no, the way... It's not a big deal. By the way, I, I'll, I'll mention this: the, the letter that you the the letter uh, that you sent with with some of these uh, requests. There we go. We'll call them requests, not demands. Some of these requests, uh, you sent it out and it had a two week deadline to respond, and you didn't get a re uh, adequate response. Is that correct? And this is why that is that up. is correct. The response yeah. we got from the APD was. Thank you for the feedback. And then it below was an attachment announcing the next ranking event in Oklahoma City. Okay. Uh, so that that should as far as the international players, that that should be fairly easy. I would have thought to. It's an easy uh, fix. Yeah, you know uh, whether you just have an escrow account. Uh, 
I'll put all the money into a Bank of America account for this particular event, uh, or uh, have X amount of uh, blank cashier's checks that you can, or traveler's checks that you can just sign over. So yeah, I, I imagine I, that will be probably fixed. Uh, and the same, is, and go ahead. And the same goes for sending international players sending in their entry fee. It is very expensive for international players to wire money over to the U.S. Then having to pay their entry fee in advance uh, is not is not it's not right. You know, a player sent in a player from Argentina, Romania, England, Africa. They send in their intent to enter. They've committed. I mean, we've never really had situations in the past where a player has said they were coming to the event, sent in an intent to enter, and had them not show up. So everybody's credit should be good. International players, at the very least, should be able to pay when they get to the tournament site. Yeah. Okay. That's, uh, yeah, that, that should be, I guess, should be fair enough. Uh, unless, uh, yeah, it should be fair enough. Uh, unless the money has been used for other things, the entry fees have been used for other things and you need that money coming in. I I don't know. Uh, I can't really speak to on that. But another one of the um, issues was uh, the the quality of players that are allowed into these major artistic pool events uh, are really it's a little sketchy. Uh, sometimes uh, there was some players that were were missing thirty eight out of forty attempts, uh, and I, and I, I can totally understand why you would, especially on the streaming table. Uh, I can absolutely understand why you, uh, for your sport, for your discipline, that's on a pay-per-view or on a stream, you want to project it in the best light possible, and its reputation doesn't do any good if you're watching somebody trying to make uh, trying to make shots time after time after time, and they're not making them. Uh, I've said before, you can come watch me. I can do that, uh, but. You have a solution for the quality of players? Yes. Any waitlisted player, which, let me, let me elaborate on that. In order to go to the World Championship, the World Pool Association sends out invitations based off the world ranking list. Generally, the top 40 get an automatic invite based off they're ranking with their federation. There's the, the BCA, there's the Pan American region, there's the Oceania region of the world, there's Africa, Asia. They all get every, every region of the world gets so many spots. Now, the field generally for certain areas of the world doesn't always fill up. So it gets opened up to any waitlisted player, player that wants to compete that's either not ranked or ranked below the top 40. So any player, any waitlisted player or player ranked below or any player that hasn't played in any professionally ranked tournament should have to qualify in order to compete at the world stage. Okay. 
Which is, yeah, and, and, and I can see I can see why the difference is as well. Uh, no, I'm sorry, I don't want to interrupt you, but you know, because my my forte is more the uh, mainstream, the uh, eight, nine, ten ball kind of thing. And if I I can go and I can go play in the U.S. Open, I can go play in it all I want, but it doesn't hurt anybody if I'm playing. If I'm not on the TV table. With you guys, it does. Yes. And it's it's one of those things as to how how a player can go about qualifying. There's I have volunteered my services as far as Skype is concerned, or me handling any players in in on the west coast of the United States. Any player that wants to compete would ha- would be required to shoot the entire program that will be used for that year's world championship or any ranking tournament, and they would be required to shoot a certain percentage of that program in order to qualify for ranking events and especially the world championship. Okay. Now, I, I will play devil's advocate here and there. Um, the... So if I decided I want to I want to take part in the next major artistic pool championship, in order what you're saying is in order for me to do that, I have to what what would my steps be? Contact somebody, contact you uh, somehow, yeah. and then you would get a hold of me. No I would, maybe I wouldn't know how to get a hold of you. Or I'm just being, being devil's advocate at this point. Contact you and say, okay, I uh, I want to play in this tournament here, and you say, okay, well, we need to see how you play. Okay, well, I'm in Phoenix, Arizona. What do you want me to do? You want me to take okay, my laptop? you would contact. You would contact myself, Abram. You would email the WPA APD board. They'd be like, okay, well, you're near the West Coast. You would be contacting Abram Diaz. He's assigned that specific area. And me and you would set up a, a time, a place, or through a Skype, through Internet, through, through a stream, where you would shoot the entire program, and I would score you based off your number of attempts. And you score a certain percentage, I can be like, okay, Mark has qualified. He shot 200 points. That is over 50% of the program. He had a successful make rate. He is qualified to compete at the World Championship or at the Masters or the U.S. Open. Okay. I I, 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 do, I see some technical difficulties with this. I'm just saying, what, what if I don't have Skype? What if my pool room that I go to doesn't have internet? I've got, I've got to figure it all out. I can't just... You know, it's, I know what you're trying to do, and I agree with what you're trying to do. I just think with the budgets that you guys are working with, making is maybe making it more difficult for people to actually enter. Yes, and that's and that's only one idea. Another idea is holding a qualifier, holding a qualifier, reserving five spots or four spots, you know for the following year's world championship and a group of players come out and compete and the top four spots 
get an invitation. They get that letterhead from the World Pool Association inviting them to compete at the World Championship. Yeah, I, yeah, I guess it's something that he's going to have the ideas right. Uh, I, I imagine it's, it's like everything else. You know, it's easy. I, it's easy to say it, and sometimes it's harder to put in a practice. You know, theory and practice. Um, tournament format. What's your? Uh, you you have uh, some issues with the tournament format. What are those? Yes. Uh, a lot of a lot of players. The vast majority of the players would like to see the playoff format be returned, like it used to be. The way the format is now, it's a you shoot forty shots, and it's a possible of three hundred and twenty points would be a perfect score. So the entire field shoots the forty shots, and at the end of those forty shots, the highest score is named the world champion. Okay. Before in the past, in the past, you used to shoot the 40 shots. Everybody would shoot the 40 shot program and they would take the top 12 highest scores and then they would advance into a single elimination playoff format where it's a round robin format. Okay. Now the 40 shots that you have to shoot, they're laid out in the beginning, right at the very beginning. And so yes, everybody's sir. got to, and, I'm not trying to sound ignorant here, but I am. Uh, I've watched Artistic Pool on the TV, you know, Trick Shot Magic and that kind of thing. What, what, how many, 40 shots? I mean, how does it start? Does it start like easy, like you've just got to make, jump a ball and make a ball? Uh, then you got to make two balls. How, how, These 40 okay. shots are divided up. It's divided up into eight disciplines. The eight disciplines in, in artistic pool. There's the trick and fancy shots. There's the special art shots. There's draw shots. There's follow shots. There's banking and kicking, which is another category. There's stroke. There's jump shots. And there's masse shots. There's five shots in each category, which players are required to shoot. Totally in 40 shots. Okay. And now, okay. So then you get a center up and said, right now, whoever gets the most, makes the most shots, wins. Get, wins, wins the championship, correct? Yes, that's the way the format is now. But you want to change it back to how it used to be, and again, correct me if I'm wrong here, you have to go through something similar to that, and then the top five, let's say well, four or five. Now they're the on they're on the main stage. Yes, uh, the way it is now, generally it's the top four highest scores get put on the final table because it's one of those four that'll end up winning the event. Okay, and then this is where they go to what I've, I'm accustomed to seeing on TV, and I'm doing this so that anybody else who's listening who's maybe not as used to it as I am, they understand as well. And that's when you get to pick a shot of your own. And play the shot. You put your opponent has to make the same shot, correct? Yes. And then they get to pick that shot, and everybody else has to replicate it. Yes, the opponent will have to duplicate that shot. Okay. It, All right. It shows head-to-head competition, and the way the format is now, why a lot of players don't like it, is because you can have 
one bad round. You could have one bad round. Maybe you just weren't feeling it on that particular day or that afternoon. And guess what? One bad round, your tournament's over. On day one, you can pretty much forget it. There's no way you're going to shoot enough of a percentage to win now. At least with this playoff format, now all you still have something to fight for. Now, if you have a bad round, you could say, well, you know what? I could shake it off. I could still get into that top 12. Then the real tournament begins. Because now it's head-to-head, head-to-head competition. Right. And that's when, yeah, that's that's what I'm accustomed to seeing. So, um, and, and is there a reason why it changed? The APD said because of time constraints, the tournaments were taking too long. But that's not true because there's been times in prior years we've been at the Allen Hopkins Super Billiard Expo, and typically our tournaments are done on four tables to to, uh, occupy a 40-man field. For that capacity, you need four tables. Well, we've done the tournament with two tables in the past in prior years, and we've had playoffs and we've finished on time. So it can be done. Okay. And uh, so there's no reason for it to not go back other than this supposed time restraints. Yes. Okay. Um, I don't know. What's your thought on that? I mean, do do you think that's an easy solve or not an easy solve? We kind of talked about age one and going, well, that should be easy enough to fix. That's easy enough to fix. And, I mean, these all these, I mean, I can understand if the players were, at, were being unreasonable, but a lot of these requests, they're simple requests. And we're not even saying for the WPA to, you know, give in and give us all our demands, but what, what can you work with us on and give us an answer? Let, let me just go go back. I'm sorry. Let me go back for one second. You talked about doing the qualifiers. Who's responsible for setting up these qualifiers and the prize fund or anything else that goes along with it and officiating those qualifiers? That's the job of the APD, the APD board. Okay. I, do, I don't know who uh, – well, I guess I do know some of the people on the APD uh, board, uh, but like myself, Nick Nicolaitis, Gabby Vesoyu, um for Europe, Nick Nicolaitis for Canada. I mean, we've all been more than willing to volunteer services to make make that happen. Do you see the qualifiers sure having? Either. Do you see the qualifiers having prize money attached to them, or just? Is purely just making sure the qualifier happens because I mean, at the end of the day, even in a qualifier or even at the world championship, it's not about the money. It's not about the money. If we were really all in it for the money, guess what? We would have picked up a golf club instead of a pool cue. Right. Yeah. We do it for the love of the game. Okay. Um. Next one, which I will be playing devil's advocate on because. I'm a little. I, I, I've got a couple of questions on it. Is um, paying the referees um, for for the major events? This is. I'm talking about world class events only. Not, you know, 
ones that are like just smaller events. I'm just talking about world class events. Yeah. Um, you the, the limit that you guys, the the board of the players union, think should be paid to a referee, a world class referee, who understands artistic pool, because I do believe there's a definite difference between, uh, and I'm saying, I'm saying, I'm going to mention this name, but I'm not, I'm not saying that he doesn't know, I'm just guessing at it. Uh, you got Jay Halford or uh, Ken Schumann, who are fabulous tournament directors, and they do brackets and they know all the rules for 8-ball, 9-ball, 10-ball, straight pool, one pocket, whatever it might be. But with artistic pool, I don't believe it's just a matter of, of a tournament director knowing how to do brackets. It's, uh, there's a lot more involved with judging what is a, a good hit, what's a good attempt, what's not a good attempt, did he do execute as he was supposed to execute the shot, etc. And you want to pay, including expenses, you want to pay that tournament director $1,000 maximum, and that includes expenses. Yes, because the tournament director doesn't need to be the referee, doesn't need to be in charge of that. The refereeing should be done by players. We all volunteer. A lot of us in the past have volunteered during the tournament when we're not shooting to referee artistic pool some of these shots are very complicated and the diagrams you got to know these diagrams and know exactly that that cue ball has to be put behind that line the one ball has to be put two balls with off the long rail there's a lot of specification so who knows these things better than the players that shoot the shots themselves Okay. So well, we we feel that if as a player, especially if you're if you're any player should be volunteering, should have to referee at least one round during during the course of the tournament during the four day event. Which if you get eight players out of the forty to volunteer one round, then it's covered. It's completely covered. Okay. Also. And, and this is staying on the same topic. In the original letter that went to the WPA slash APD, you didn't want Tom Rosman being a tournament director anymore, simply because you thought that he was uh, the group thought he was biased towards certain players, and that's one of the reasons. One of the reasons I'm guessing that you don't want him involved anymore. Um, now. Whether it's true or not true, we're talking about, okay, well, the, we'll just have the players do the refereeing. So you've got the players who are all playing against each other refereeing the other players that they're playing against, which seems like a, whether the, these guys are straight up and as honest as can be, this also can be the appearance of impropriety for one reason or another. Is that a, a, a realistic way of going about doing it, that the players can referee other players in the same tournament? 
Yes, because, I mean, fouls are very obvious. If you hit the blocker ball, it's very obvious. If you nick the rack while you're coming across to catch the other ball, it's very obvious. There's very little discretion. I mean, it's a fine, it's a very fine, it's, there's no fine line. It's black or it's white. You made the shot or you missed it. So uh, it doesn't, all it takes is for somebody to know the setup of the shots. And it's a player's responsibility when you're competing at that level. It says in the code of conduct and in the rules, players are responsible for knowing the setup of every single shot. So it's something that, you know, I could be, I could be refereeing for player A. He could be my direct competitor. I'm just verifying that he's doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's not, he's not cheating that ball further in the pocket. He's not, you know, uh, going to where the shot plays a little longer. He's not bumping the table when there's a slow roll. It's stuff like that. And, I mean, we're all, I mean, all of us, we're all, there's never been an issue in the past of a player being accused of, of cheating. Because okay. it's very obvious when there's a when something didn't happen. Okay. If he's, if he's that blatantly obvious, uh, then, you know, uh, but then, so, that would be the, you, you believe that would be the best alternative. Do you still, if that's the case, do you still need a tournament director? Yes, we do need a tournament director. And, and you can, uh, and can you I'm in Phoenix. Can I, and I hold a tournament, can I get a world-class tournament director this weekend? Absolutely. Really? Wait, what's your, say your question again? We, I'm in Phoenix, and if I want to hold, uh, and if there's a, a professional, a world-class artistic pool event this weekend, and I need a tournament director for it, I will be able to find one. In, Probably in not hell? on this short of notice. Probably not uh, on this short of notice. Okay, let's say you said in six months. Will is there going to be one available in Phoenix in six months? Not or available. Will they have to Phoenix? travel? They would have to travel. Okay, so the thousand dollars that you're proposing to give them, and again, this is where I'm playing the devil's advocate. Uh, let's say they have to come from Dallas. I've gone through these numbers. In my, well, let's say it's at the Super Billiards Expo. And, and the, the tournament director's in Dallas. They've got a $300 round-trip ticket, which is probably cheap to pay. Then they've got four nights in a hotel. Uh, so we're at $700. Uh, they haven't eaten anything yet. Um, and the cab ride from Philadelphia Airport to uh, Super to Valley Forge is fifty dollars each way. So there's a hundred. So we're at eight hundred dollars before they've eaten anything, and so that leaves a two hundred dollar profit. Um, yes, at, Mark, at you're best. Mark, you're absolutely right. You are absolutely right. You're gonna you're gonna lose money, or at very best, you're gonna break even, or at best, you're gonna make fifty bucks. So we're asking, but, so we're asking you know, world class, a world class referee in your uh, division to work for four days for two hundred dollars. 
Yes, that's Mark, what my it's, issue it's, is. Yes, and you know what? You have a valid point, but it's always come down. You know that at this year's World Championship, the tournament director made more money than the guy that won the tournament. It's all, all these tournament directors we've had in the past, like Tom Rossman, you know, Mark Dimmick has helped direct, uh, Jason Lynch from Michigan has helped direct and put in, put in scores and helped us run events before. I mean, it's all, a lot of it's volunteer work. I mean, you get a, you get a trip out of it, you know, you, it's all, it's all volunteer. There's no money right now in this sport. There just isn't. Okay. You know, so we, we, we just know that if there, if there is, if there is, uh, a company or a person that's good with a computer that's in the area, that's in the area that wants to help direct our event, you know, he can come out and he's going to get paid a thousand dollars for it. Right. You know, maybe he might not want to fly out from California to Atlanta or, but if there's a guy somewhere nearby in Florida that wants to make the drive and make a thousand bucks, or half that after his expenses, then that's what's being offered. Okay. Or if not, it should be it should be a board member to direct a tournament that's not playing in the tournament. Right. The, the tournament, I agree. The tournament director should not be making more than the the person who wins the event. That that's a that's a no brainer. You're right there. Um, okay. Um, Payout. I guess in you guys' agreement that or sign-up sheets that you have for these events, it say it states that the payouts and admin, that sorry, the added money and the entry fees go toward payouts and administration fees. Is that correct? The tournament expenses. Tournament expenses. So. Um, What's, what generally, how much do you is the entry fee to one of these? Yes, I mean, entry fee and added money, you know, you have your added money, then the entry fee goes towards pri- additional prize money and tournament expenses. Okay. So the entry, because I'm, I'm not really, other than, I guess, to call it green fees, I guess, I used to call it green fees. Um, but I'm not really accustomed to seeing it where the, it says the added money, let's say 5000 and 200 a person entry fee, and you get all that money together, that usually is what is the added money and the entry fees are divided up into uh, the payouts. That's what the players get. The admin yeah. fees usually come out of another... Uh, form of either sponsorship or you know, sponsorship, really, right? Yeah. Uh, so you don't really know because it's part of one of the you is having an open book on where the money all goes. Uh, and part the of the And the, the the issue with that, with where that money goes, is like we'll, we'll even go back to the the thousand dollar tournament fee. Let's wave that off. Mark, if you were coming out to direct the event and your fee's $2,000 plus expenses, okay, so we're paying Mark, say, $2,500. That pretty much covers him. Uh, we need some uh, 
Aramis maybe just decided they couldn't sponsor our event, so we had to buy a couple of Aramis sets of balls. We want to recover the, the tables for the room owner when we're done. Uh, we want to give him brand new felt. All that adds up to $4,000. Okay, let us know. Give us some, let us know where our money went. It should be a black and white as to where, where, our, where our money is going. What are these expenses? How much did the live stream cost? Okay, $500. Okay, live stream was $500. That's why we're short there. Uh, okay, the director's fees, that was another 2000 And then the balls and then the plot, that was another 1000 Okay. Now we see why first place only got $2,000. Right. Okay. And so to... to so at this point, you're not, you guys are not made privy to, to any of that information where the money's going. It's yes, just taken not. out, and you say, okay, because everybody can do the math. If uh, you've got ten players at uh, two hundred dollars entry fee, and then you got five thousand dollar added money, that much money, that's how much it is right there. And we've taken out. All you know is. 5,000 has been taken out, correct? Yes. Okay. But you don't know where it went. We don't know where it went. Just let us know where it went, and then you know what it is, what it is. Okay. So Maybe, maybe you know. So that leads me to my next question. Is there a WPA sanctioning fee, do you know? Because WPA has a sanctioning fee. As of right now, the artistic players do not pay any sanctioning fee. But it's okay. The players or the... Does it, see, like the U.S. Open, you know Barry Berman's got to put yeah, up... Yeah. I, I can't remember how much. Maybe 5000 or something. He has to give the WPA as a sanctioning fee before the tournament starts. To set aside anything that the players have to pay a 5% of whatever their winnings are to the WPA. Um, well, there's no sanctioning fee that comes out at the beginning of X amount of dollars? No, I don't believe so, but you don't quote me on that. Okay. Um, let me see here. What else do we got? Um, there's this... Uh, the, the, the whole thing, I, I, I hate to keep bringing up uh, Tom Rossman, but he's been an integral part of artistic pool and from, from the get-go, for, you know, from the beginning and helping make it maybe, you know, as popular as it is, as it is and died to where it is today. Uh, and he promotes a lot of the events. Uh, are there a lot of promoters out there that are out, out you know, if, if you don't want Tom Rossman involved, who's going to take his place? Uh, how, how many events does he actually put on? How many, how many event, major events are there per year? And how many of those does he put on? How much are, we, how much are you guys going to lose by him not being involved? You know what? Tom Rossman for years has been the backbone and he's the founder of Artistic Pool. I consider him. I love the man to death. The players just have a different vision. The players have a different vision, and we're prepared to go out and get events ourselves. 
And the, the I'm sorry, just going back to the I, I, I keep, I'm sorry, I keep skipping around on you, Abraham. Um, going back to the the payouts, right now you guys pay 100% of the field, and that's another yes, disagreement sir. that you have in paying the 100% of the field. Yes, I mean it. Basically, it you pay 25, 30% max. You pay the top half. You pay the top. If there's 36 players, you pay the top 12. You know, everybody getting a payout, paying out the guy that comes in last. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, and I hate to say it, but you know what? Realistically, it's not the way the world works. Because that just takes away money from the guys that did finish in the top half of the field. Okay. You, you guys are, are proposing to uh, to pay 30, 30%, 33% or 30%. Is it basically a third of the field? Yes. Okay, and so that will make the, the top players will obviously be making more money. Yes, that is correct. Okay, and deservedly so. Don't don't misunderstand. I'm not. Uh, I don't disagree with with that. Uh, paying all the way down is a, a kind of a pointless exercise. Uh, if you ask me, but, um, is there is there anything else that you that's on your mind that you think you'd, I, the the list is is a very long list for anybody who uh, wants it's to a, look it's at a the. It is a lengthy list. I mean, and I believe I mean we covered all the important the important topics. But I mean, if they want to check out the the letter. It's it's all over Facebook. They can go to the Artistic Pool Players page on Facebook, and they can check it out. It's been pinned. It's been pinned, and it's going to remain there until I basically decide to take it down, which I plan to leave it up for a while until something happens. So you have, based on the fact that you haven't heard anything back um, at this point, from the APD, um, what's what's the next step? When's the next major event? And are you guys going to follow through on boycott? For the next event is the Artistic Pool Masters. It's going to be held in Oklahoma City, first week of December. And it breaks my heart, but me, as well as about 15 other players, we're not going and they're all top players. And it's, I'm sorry, what was the day again? October? It's in December. First week of December. Oh, first week of December. Okay. Hmm. Is, and, there, uh, is, we is there anything that can go. be done at this point uh, that's going to change your minds? Uh, I mean, it's a couple you know months. It doesn't, it doesn't look like it. It doesn't look like it. We gave the WPA APD board two weeks so that we could make travel arrangements within a, fish, a sufficient amount of time. They pretty much ignored it. So the players, we're just, we're putting our foot down. We're putting our foot down. If we want something to change, then we got to just act. We can't just be talking about it. We got to act on it. And the way it, and it hurts because I love to play, but I'm prepared to sit out. 
Uh, and everybody's going to follow. Everybody's going to be your old man together. Are you solid? Because we've heard it's solid. We've heard and rules before about people boycotting, and then somebody doesn't. No, I mean it's pretty solid. I mean, if the WPA, if they want to ban Nick Nicolaitis, guess what? They're going to ban me. They're going to ban Andy Siegel. They're going to ban Dave Nangle. They're going to ban Gabby Vasoyu. They're going to ban Sebastian Umeli. We're all. I mean, that's. That's just the way it's going to work. And and if nobody backs down, um, what's the next step? And if nobody backs down, then it's going to be up to us, the players' board. We're going to go out, and we're going to hustle to try to find some events, even if there's very little added money. Yes, I, I, I said this before when... The ABP started. Um, I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with that organization. Uh, they started, they started for a good reason and they were going to boycott the U.S. Open. Oh, I remember that. And things ended up working out. Everything worked out okay. You know, so it, it was not an issue, but they got together and they got together for a good reason and I supported their reason, and somebody had asked me, what do you think of this? And I said, as I said to you, I'd hate to see you guys, you know, chopping up your nose to spite your face uh, and end up not having anything. You know, see, 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 I, I, you guys can go out and hustle and get deals and get sponsors and that kind of thing, uh, but, you know, in the interim, how long does it take to get to that point where you're back to where you were uh, and well, not have anything? I, I, it's not in the money for you guys. So you've said that yourself. It's not about the money. So it's a, I guess it's a different animal again. Yes. I mean, we always hope for the best. I'm confident because we have a, a good group of guys, a good group of guys that know a lot of people. And we already have something in the works right now. But we hope for the best, and we're confident we will get events. We will get events, even if there's very little added money. And we're also preparing for the worst. I mean, uh, an artistic player, I mean, the best thing he can do is market himself as an entertainer. You know, I'll be very happy just doing exhibitions. Right. As uh, Florian Cole has done a pretty good job of marketing himself, hasn't he? Oh, yes. He, he's had very good management. He had a great agent. He's talented. And he's a perfect example. Him and Jeanette Lee, they marketed themselves very well. And they did a good job at it. Yeah. Well, I hope it, well, I really hope it works out. I think about, you know, let, let's say it works out for you. Um and uh, your players' organization, what happens to the uh, WPA-APD? I mean, do, do they lose anything? Do you lose anything if you just go your separate ways? Do they just, you know, I mean, what happens to the APD? Are they non-existent then? Well, if they're non-existent, it's because that was their decision. We weren't asking a whole lot. 
And and even the, so now, even though we've gone through these demands, and you said, I've said, is there anything that can change? And you said you don't think so. So is that you know, the end? Unless, I mean, pretty much. I mean, I'm gonna. I would have to go back and talk to the players' board, and we're gonna figure out what is what is the next step. Where do we go from here? Because those answers, I really don't have. I don't have for you. But we'll get there. We got we got board members. We got Europe covered. We got the U.S. We got Canada. And we got people from the from Panam- Sebastian Gumeli and myself, the Pan American region of the world. You know, we have a, we're pretty well spread out to where we feel we can make things happen. Good. Well, uh, you know, I, I I hope that I, I would wish that you guys could all uh, get keep going and, and work together and, and make things work in a cohesive manner. I do but too. Times change and. Uh, you know, everything everything evolves uh, one way or another, and uh, you know it's a shame. It's a shame that it had to come to this, I guess. Yes. So, well, I, I appreciate your time, Abraham, and uh, thank you. Good luck to you on your travels and uh, uh, the the future, and hopefully that you know, if anybody wants to uh, contact you guys for support, is there any way they, how they should get hold of you guys? Uh, yes, they can go to artisticpoolplayers.com, and there is links to every one of our profile pages where they can send us a direct email, and then some of us have posted our personal lines on there as well. Okay. So, so if uh, somebody says, hey, listen, I, wanna, I don't want to see this thing go away. I'm, I've got a couple of grand I want to put into something. They can do that. Yes, sir. Okay, okay. Hey, Rev, again, thank you very much for your time. No, thank you. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. No problem, my friend. I will, uh, I'll speak to you again soon, maybe as, as things change or things evolve or there's a, a, a reunion of, uh, or a makeup party. We'll find that out as well. Hopefully, yes. All right, my friend. You take it easy. All right. Take care. Bye. Well, that's Abraham Diaz. Um, I don't know how much of the uh, politics of artistic pool anybody has been following or heard about, but I think we got some fairly straight answers. I hopefully I asked uh, the poignant questions and uh, you know got as good answers we we can get at this point. Obviously, there's a board of people of uh, players there that all have to. Um, put their stamp on things, but it seems like Abraham Diaz has uh, the the authority to be able to say, tell it how it is. So, uh, I appreciate you all listening, and hopefully you found it interesting, and we will speak to you next week. This is Mark Kentrell, the Legends and Champions Report, brought to you by Neil's Garage Cabinet from Mesa, Arizona. Until next week, we'll see you then.